Well, good morning, Generation Church. It's good to be out today to worship the Lord, and I just want to welcome you here this morning. I'm Pastor Randy Visconti. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the founding pastor, actually, and um, it's good to be speaking to you this morning. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online, and whether you might be close by watching online or far away. If you're far away, be glad, because it's going to be like 117 degrees here today, so it's just crazy, right? But uh, so it's good to come out and, and uh, just share the message with you this morning. And I'd like you to take out your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 7. And we're going to be looking at verses 28 and 29. And uh, while, while you're uh, turning there, one time there was this bus full of politicians driving down the street. And unfortunately, they got lost and wound up on this far out, obscure country road, and, and they were going too fast, and the bus full of politicians didn't make the curve, slammed into a tree. Terrible accident. Well, the only one close by was this old farmer, and he came out and investigated, and he didn't know what else to do, so he got his backhoe out and dug a great big ditch and buried them, buried them all, bus and all. Well, a little while later, officials came looking for the politicians, and they found the farmer, and the farmer told them what happened and said how the bus crashed, and he buried them, bus and all. And, and the official said, you mean they were all dead? And the farmer said, well, some said they weren't, but you know how them politicians do lie. <laughs> and you know what? We live in a time of great lies and false narratives. We're lied to by politicians and the media and academia, even some churches. And, and the Bible talks about how, how people have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And this is not new. This is very similar to the time of Jesus. And in the Sermon on the Mountain, where Jesus had given them the, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, and here the Lord just drops this major truth bomb, a spiritual Moab, the mother of all bombs, on the people of Galilee, and no wonder that they were amazed. And we see in, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, it said, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed. They were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So we see that the Lord's words were so powerful, so full of, of truth, so straightforward that the crowds, they were amazed. They were awestruck, dumbfounded, marveled. No wonder we call this the best sermon ever. And in the best sermon ever, we're focusing in on the Beatitudes. And just a little review on the Beatitudes. When you think of the Beatitudes... Think of them as the three be these attitudes. Three B's you should be. First of all, be different. To follow Christ and to live by his teachings and by his example, you're going to be different. The world says be rich, be full of yourself, be proud, be arrogant. But Jesus said be poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble. The world says, take care of number one. Watch out for yourself and your own interest. But Jesus said, be a mourner, who, someone who cares for others. Blessed are those who care. The world says, be powerful and strong and aggressive. But Jesus said, be meek and gentle. Blessed are those who submit to God. 
The world says, be hungry for more, more money, more power, more pleasure. But Jesus said, be hungry for God. Blessed are those who do what's right. The world says, hey, man, get even. Paybacks. Paybacks are a... <laughs> Revenge is sweet. But Jesus said, be merciful. Blessed are those who let others off the hook. The world says, be cunning and devious. Do what you need to do to get what you want, to get ahead. But Jesus said, Blessed be, be pure in heart. Blessed are the holy. The world says, fight and win. Don't take nothing from nobody. Jesus said, be a peacemaker. Blessed are those who bring peace. The world says, don't stick your neck out. Go along and get along. But Jesus said, be persecuted. Blessed are those who endure for God. Living God's way is going to make you different. Second B is be these ways or be these attitudes. I like to think of the be attitudes as the be these attitudes. This is the standard. This is the code of conduct for how believers are to live. Third B is be blessed. Eight times Jesus said blessed or happy is the person who does this. Jesus didn't teach us the Beatitudes to oppress us or to curse us. He taught us the Beatitudes to bless us. One author called these the be happy attitudes. These are the keys to inner happiness in the sense that, that you will experience the fullness and the purposes of God in our lives if we live this way. And we also learned that there's two ways you can go through life. Reactive or proactive. Reactive means you're just reacting to people and circumstances around you. If someone's mean to you, you're mean back. If they're nice, you're nice back. If they're kind, you're kind back. If they're nasty, you're nasty back. If they yell at you, you yell back. That's how a lot of people go through life. But the problem with that is, is you're letting other people control and dictate your behavior, your mood, and, and your outlook on life. You know, you hear people say, well, I, I got around that person. They just ruined my day. Or this person brings out the, rest, the worst in me. Or... Or when I get around these people, they drive me crazy. And the result is you lose control of your life. Other people are controlling you. Be proactive. Proactive means I choose how I am going to treat you. I choose my attitudes and my behaviors. I will treat you the way God wants me to treat you. I'm going to treat you by these eight characteristics whether you like it or not. I have the power to live the way God wants me to live. And I will be humble and meek and pure in heart. And I'll be a peacemaker and merciful. And I'm going to rejoice when I'm persecuted and there's nothing you can do about it. That's being proactive. And you know what? God's proactive. We see that in, in Psalm 103, verse 8 to 10. It says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in in, in, in love, he will not always accuse us, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as, notice this, he doesn't treat us as our sin deserved. Aren't you glad for that? Or repay us according to our iniquities. God chooses to be proactive towards you and to me, and thank God he is. So this week we're going to look at Matthew 5, 3. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. Now, this is another one of those beatitudes that a lot of people don't understand or don't get right or sometimes even see it wrongly. And many have no idea what it means to be 
poor in spirit. What, what does that involve? So let's start by looking at what poor in spirit is. And poor in spirit. Now, what trips people up about poor in spirit is the word poor. That's what trips people up. They hear the words poor and automatically their minds go to what? Money. Wealth. And really poor in spirit has nothing to do with worldly wealth or money. You could be a billionaire and be poor in spirit. Or you can be a minimum wage earner or dirt poor and not be poor in spirit. It has more to do with your heart than your, than your wallet. There's no virtue in being poor. There's no virtue in being rich. If I had a choice, I'd probably choose to be rich. But there, there's, there's no virtue in being rich or poor in itself as far as God's concerned. Both have their challenges and their blessings. But poor in spirit has more to do with your heart than your money. Another misconception that people get wrong about poor in spirit is that following Christ makes you spiritually poor. That Jesus wants us to be spiritually poor. That's not the same as being poor in spirit. See, the unsaved are spiritually poor. The Bible says that without Christ, you're wretched, you're poor, you're naked, you're blind, and you're spiritually dead. None of that's not too good, right? God's people, on the other hand, are rich. The Bible talks about, in Ephesians 3, 8, the unsearchable riches of Christ. The Bible says that we are rich in faith, that we are rich in good works, 1 Timothy 6, that we are rich in knowledge, Romans eleven thirty eight. 38, that we are rich in generosity, 2 Corinthians 8, 2. We have riches that the world can't give and the world can't take away. Eternal, sure, real riches. So, what does porn spirit mean? Well, let me just say that the Lord knew exactly what he was doing when he put poor in spirit first at the, at the top of the list. It wasn't by accident or happens chance. Everything God did, everything the Lord does is with a purpose. So poor in spirit being the first of the eight, the reason for that it's being first is unless you become poor in spirit, you're never going to enter the kingdom of God. And you'll never live out the rest of the Beatitudes. So it all starts with being poor in spirit. Poor in spirit unlocks the rest of the Beatitudes to work in our lives. So to exhibit any of the eight other characteristics or seven other characteristics, you ha it starts with being poor in spirit. Now in the Greek word, in the Greek there's three words for poor, and this will help you understand this, or three levels of poverty. The first level of poverty is to be without influence or power. It would be like a poor farmer maybe has a couple acres or a small shop owner and they're able to scratch out a living. They have some, some substance. They, they do own something, but they have very little wealth. So that's the first level of poverty, like a four, poor farmer or shopkeeper. Second level of poverty is, would be like a field worker or a day laborer. Uh, this is somebody who could go out and earn uh, make money for that day. We understand day laborers and, and they work that day. They get paid that day. Uh, Jesus told the parable about the workers who went out at different times of the day and they all got the same pay and, and there's a whole, that's a whole other story. But it, it was a tough life. It's a tough life, but you could, you could get by. You could earn a, a living and buy some food. The third and bottom level of poverty was to be utterly destitute, someone who was in abject poverty. This was a person who owns nothing and can do nothing. 
They cannot work. They are totally dependent on the goodwill and the mercy of someone else. It would be like, like the crippled beggar at the gate beautiful where Peter and John walk, about, walk by and he said, hey, let, let me have some money. He's like, a, a beggar has to beg or they're not, if, they, if someone doesn't give them something, they're not going to eat it. They're not going to be able to buy anything. They're totally dependent on somebody giving them something, on somebody's goodwill, somebody doing something for them. And that's the word that Jesus used for that poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit means coming to a place of total reliance and dependence on God. We must become poor in spirit in order to receive salvation. Poor in spirit is just the opposite of sinful man. See, our sinful nature, by nature, we're proud, we're arrogant, we're independent, we're self-reliant, we're rebellious, and it doesn't recognize its need for God or the need to humble itself before God. It believes I, I can achieve my salvation. I can earn favor with God by my efforts and my abilities. And you know what? This is basically believed by all, other, all the other religions in the world. Believe that. Now, people often ask, well, why are there so many religions in the world, Pastor Randy? And how do I know which one is right? I talk to people all the time and they say that. Well, in reality, there's only two religions in the world. And they all come down to this. Works versus grace. Works versus grace. All the religions of the world, except Christianity, believe in works. Salvation by works. Some sort of works-based religion. A human effort, my power, my ability. I can, I can do what I need to do. Like, it, like, for instance, like Hindus that believe over a course of hundreds or maybe thousands of lifetimes, maybe I'll finally get this right. Or the New Age religion believes I have the power within me and I just got to bring that power out. Or other religions believe if I just work hard enough, if I just jump through all the religious hoops they tell me I have to jump through, I'll become worthy enough. But the problem with works, there's two basic problems with works-based religion. Number one, how much is enough? How many works does it take? One, two, 50, a million? Who knows, right? You never know if you've done enough. There's no assurance. There's no confidence of salvation. Other problem is, what about my bad works? What about my sins? How do I get rid of those? There's no way to do that. Now, some believe that maybe my good works can balance out my bad works, but how do you figure that one out, right? If you murder somebody, how many good works does it take to balance that one out? You know, if I murder somebody and help an old lady cross the street, does that balance that? Doesn't seem right, does it? So you, know, you never know any along those lines. Christianity alone, separate from all other religions in the world, Christianity alone believes in grace alone by faith alone and not by works. Grace means unmerited favor. I can't earn it. I don't deserve it. It is a gift. I can only receive it. That's why it says in, in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but, but, 
Aren't you glad for that butt? That is a great butt there, man. I'll tell you. I don't know how often in church you can say that was a great butt, but that's a great butt. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now put back that chart, guys, for me. Put back that chart. So here's the difference between works and grace. Works is due. Grace is done. All the work's done. When Jesus hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. That means it's all done. It's all taken care of. You don't have to add anything to that. He did it all. And because he did it all, he gets the glory. Now, it's works is my effort. Grace is God's effort. If it's up to me, guess what? I'm going to blow it. And if that shocks you, you'll blow it even worse than I do probably. All right? So, whereas grace, it's God's effort. Is God going to blow it? No way, right? Works is my glory. If I did the effort, I deserve the glory, right? But grace is God's glory. That's why we praise him. That's why we worship him. People say, well, why do you come and worship the Lord? Because he did it all, man. That's why we're worshiping him. He deserves the praise and the glory. <laughs> Works is pride. I did it. That's pretty good. Grace is poor in spirit. I am desperately in need of a savior. So, salvation by works, it, yeah, it appeals to my sinful nature. I can work for it. I can earn it. I can measure myself against others. And, and that helps me to look down on those who don't measure up as good as me. And, and uh, that results in judgmental spiritual pride. That's why you see people who believe in works are very judgmental and have a lot of spiritual pride. Now, salvation by works is a slap in the face to God because you're actually saying, I don't need the cross. Cross isn't necessary. One time I was talking to someone, and I asked, why do you think God would let you into heaven? And he said, well, you know, I'm, I try to be a, a good person. I, I think I'm a good man. And, and I said, well, why do you think Jesus went to the cross if you could just get into heaven by being a good person? And he said, you know, I never really thought of that. See, when you believe in salvation by works, you're saying, I can do this. I have the power. Remember He-Man? I have the power. I used to watch that with my kids. <laughs> but Titus 3, 5 says, He saved us not because of the righteous things we've done, not my good works, but because of His mercy. He has washed away our sins and gives us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved. It is not from yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works that man can boast. The Pharisees had it all. You know, the Lord illustrated this so beautifully in Luke 18, verse 9 to 11. The Pharisees, they thought they had it all. And, and we see in Luke 8, it says, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. <laughs> what do you think he believed in? Works-based, right? And what happens when you believe in works-based? You tend to look down on other people. All right? And Jesus told this parable. And, and he said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week, give a tenth of all I get. 
But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he would beat his breast and said, God, just have mercy on me, a sinner, please. I tell you the truth. Rather, rather that I tell, you, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves become poor in spirit will be exalted. So here we have an example of the very, Jesus uses the very top of the religious ladder and he compares it to the guy at the very bottom of the religious ladder. I mean, if you don't like the IRS now, they really hated tax collectors back in those days. They despised them. They were the worst scum on earth. And Jesus uses, and he said, the Pharisee, he had it all. He had all the bona fides. He had all the boxes, checks. He said, I'm not like other men. I am so much better than, the, than my next door neighbor. And, and I fast twice a week. I tithe, which is a good thing. You don't, that's good. You know, I tithe. I go to church. I say amen when I'm supposed to say amen. I laugh at Pastor Randy's jokes. That's, that gets you a lot of points. And, and uh but the tax collector, he just beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Who was poor in spirit of these two? The tax collector. The tax collector was the guy who went home justified before God because he believed in salvation by grace alone. You know, like that song goes, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. So thank God for that amazing grace. But, but you see, poor in spirit is not just for salvation. It's also for living the Christian life. The poor, to be poor in spirit, yeah, we, we have to become poor in spirit to enter the kingdom of God, to be saved, to become a child of God. But it's also critical as we live for the Lord to be poor in spirit. Because the Christian life is a life of dependency on God. And we learn to depend less and less on ourselves and more and more on God. So as I grow in Christ, it's less of me, more of God. Like John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. Paul says in, in Galatians uh, 2, 20, says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I've been crucified with Christ. I, don't lo I no longer live. The old me is dead. Christ is now living in me. We can be tempted to trust and rely on things like money or family or friends or things, our skills and our abilities, but those things will always let you down. The poor in spirit live a life of dependency on God. And that's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, he talked about all the hardships he went through. Now, Paul is one of the greatest Christians that ever lived suffered tremendously for Christ. But here's what he said. He said, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves. You see, he had to relearn not to rely on ourselves, but on God. I have to learn to become more and more dependent on God. You know, there's a hymn we used to sing. I just, I love this hymn. It says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus's blood and righteousness. What's your hope built on this morning? My hope is built on nothing less but the blood of Christ 
and his righteousness. I'm not trusting the sweetest frame. I'm not trusting anything else, but I am leaning on the name of Jesus. On Christ the solid rock I stand. Everything else is sinking sand. You're either trusting on Christ the solid rock or you are on sinking sand. And Jesus told this parable of a wise builder and a foolish builder. The foolish builder built his house on sand, on sinking sand, and it fell with a crash. But the wise builder, he was poor in spirit. He built his house on the rock, on the solid rock, and it weathered any storm. You know, Jesus was poor in spirit. He modeled poor in spirit for us. And in John chapter 5, verse 19, he's... It says, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. That's poor in spirit. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son does also. So our Lord fully submitted, fully relied on his heavenly father. And that is his, that's the example for us. So just here's seven characteristics of being poor in spirit. This is kind of what a poor in spirit person will look like. Number one, less and less centered on myself, more and more centered on Christ. So I am constantly replacing my values, my attitudes, my old way of thinking with biblical values, biblical thinking, biblical attitudes. Now this happened, a lot of this took place when I was saved, but it's still a lifelong process as I grow into it more and more. Which sometimes it means I have to relearn or have to deprogram a lifetime of wrong thinking. Especially depending if you were saved older. You got a lot of wrong thinking to get rid of. A lot of stinking thinking to flush out of there. And you have to replace that with truth. What does the Bible say? What does God think about this? Now I put everything through the filter of what does the Bible say? What does God think about this? What is truth? Secondly, never lose your wonder of God. Never lose your wonder of God. God is, he's so good to me. He is so good. It, it amazes me. I mean, sometimes it just amazes me. Man, I, I am a child of God. Don't ever lose your wonder that I am going to heaven. Yeah. You know, not too long ago, I read an article about this Christian artist. I guess he's pretty well known in the music world. And, and he was talking about how he lost his faith and how he's walking away from God. And one of the things that bothered him was, was always like, how could a good God send people to hell? And, and uh, you, know, you know what's a better question to ask? You know what really what, what we should be asking, what, what someone who is poor in spirit would ask, would be how can a good God let a guy like me into heaven? How can a God ever welcome me into heaven? How, how wonderful, oh, how marvelous that God loves me, that he saved me, that he redeemed me, that he made me his child. I marvel at that. I, I, I am going to heaven. I am going to heaven not, not because I'm such a good boy or moral or I'm so religious or I'm even a pastor. I'm going to heaven because one time I said, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's how any of us go to heaven. Third thing, you tend to be less whiny and complainy. Ooh, ouch, right? Ouch. Would you like a little cheese to go with that wine, right? You know, you know, you know the poor in spirit don't waste their time on why me? Why is it always me? Or 
unfair. Life's just so unfair. Or I'm a victim. Everybody's picking on me. I deserve this or I deserve that. And on and on you could go. You put those things in God's hands. And you're more focused on, I just want to do his will. And, and like Jesus said, I've come to do the will of him who sent me. My life's mission is to do the will of God. Fourth characteristic is you regard others more highly. The poor in spirit care more about others and their welfare more and more. The Bible says consider others over yourself. It's not, it's not here's me and here's the universe spinning around me, right? Have you known people like that? Maybe you're sitting next to a person like that because it's not you, right? It's got to be the person next to me. The poor in spirit are more concerned about what can I do to bless others, to help others, to serve others, to minister to others. C.S. Lewis said, humility is not, thinking of, is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not going around, I'm just a worm, but it's just thinking less about you and more about others. Number five, more time in prayer. Just as a beggar spends his life begging help from others, we spend our, our, our time begging or praying to God. We pray, God, move, move on behalf of others, but God also meet, meet my needs. Uh, God, move in my life. The poor in spirit know how to ask. They know it's okay to ask. Jesus said, you have not because you ask not, right? Now, you know, I got to confess, my wife Dawn, she's better at this than, than I am. Like when, when, we talk, when we have a need come up and, or we hear about somebody's need, I mean, she'll, she just, she'll bust right out into prayer, man. She'll bust out in tongues. She'll start praying. You, you know what my first thought is? How can I fix this? What, what do I need to do? And, and Corey Ten Boom said, make prayer your steering wheel, not your spare wheel. How much would life go better if you just made prayer your steering wheel? Number six, the poor in spirit. This is a big one. This is a big one. The poor in spirit take Christ on his terms, not theirs. Now, a lot of people, they want, sure, they want Jesus. They want to go to heaven. Yeah, if I, you know, if I had to choose between heaven and hell, sure, I'd rather go to heaven. Uh, they want to have their sins forgiven as long as it's on my terms, as long as it fits into my lifestyle, as long as it's not too uncomfortable or demanding on me, sure, I'm on board with this. Kind of like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, Jesus, what must I do to be saved? Just name it. And Jesus said, don't steal, don't lie, honor your father and your mother, and love your neighbor. And the rich young ruler said, got it, man. Done it. I've nailed that. I should be good. And then Jesus said, go and sell all you have and then come and follow me. That's my terms. And he went away sad, the Bible said. You see, that, that guy, that rich man, he, he wanted God, but he wasn't desperate for God. He was okay with God on his terms. Yes, Lord, I'll follow you, but 
I do have some uh, addendums, some quid pro quos, some provisions, some terms we need to agree to. Other than that, I'm all in. And the Lord picked up on that because he knows hearts. And Jesus was saying to him, and he's saying to us, will you do what I ask? No matter, no matter what. Without holding back. Do you want to follow me more than anything else? You know, Jesus was actually inviting this guy to, to be one of his, maybe one of his disciples. Come, follow me. That's what he said to his disciples. But his response was, the rich man's response, rich young man's response was, no thanks. Price is too high. There's things in my life I'm not ready to let go of or change. I, I, I want to hold on to because the cost is too high of, of letting them go. The, the demands are too much on me. Now, how do you think the poor and the, the, the rich man felt about that decision? The Bible says he went away sad. How do you think he feels about that decision right now? But he regrets it right now, right? This poor in spirit say, no cost is too high. I am desperate for God. I need God. I must follow the Lord. One time Jesus was giving a teaching and a, and a lot of people got up and left. And Jesus said to Peter, hey, you're going to leave too, Peter? And Peter said, Lord, I love this. He said, Lord, where else am I going to go? You're the only one that has eternal life. No other, uh, uh, there's no other way. I am not leaving. The poor in spirit say, hey, I am in and I am here to stay. And here's the seventh thing. Poor in spirit live a life of unending gratitude. The poor in spirit have their hearts full of praise and thanksgiving. And, and the heart of every believer should be the heart of, un, uh, of abounding gratitude. You're fully aware of how much God has given to you and how little I deserve it. And that, makes, that, that makes, gives, just gives me an overwhelming sense of gratitude. One time there was this world-famous violinist, and he was going to do a concert in this city, and, and uh, this violinist just happened to have this very rare Stradivarius violin worth, uh, you know, just a whole bunch of money. And, and, uh, but he noticed, as he was going around town, he noticed that a lot of the posters said, come out and see this famous violinist with a world, with this Stradivarius guitar worth millions of, uh, violin worth millions of dollars. Come and, see the, come and see the violinist with this violin worth millions of dollars. And it kind of bothered him a little bit. So as he was going out, leaving his hotel to go to the concert, he left his, his Stradivarius violin in the hotel. And on the way to the concert, he went and he went by this pawn shop and bought a violin for a couple hundred bucks, whatever they go for. And he goes and he puts on this concert and, and at the end people are standing, giving him a standing ovation and clapping and cheering. And the violinist takes the violin and he smashes it on the table. And he's holding it up and he says, it's not the violin, it's the violinist. <laughs> God is the violinist. We're just the violins. Doesn't matter if you're a, a pawn shop violin or a Stradivarius, it's the violinist, right? God makes the beautiful music. The poor in spirit realize I'm not much of a violin, but it doesn't matter. 
Max Lucado said, only a great God does for his children what they can't do for themselves. And that's why poor in spirit was the first of the Beatitudes. So just as we close, those who come to the Lord with, with broken hearts, they don't leave with broken hearts. Those who come to the Lord poor in spirit leave rich in Christ. God wants us to recognize our poverty so he can make us rich. And by giving up their own kingdom, the poor in spirit inherit God's kingdom. Let's bow our heads as we go to the Lord this morning. As we just look to the Lord this morning, I, I just want to ask you, have you come to the place this morning where, you, where you're ready to say, Jesus, I, I need you. I am, I am all yours, God. And I'm willing to come to you on any terms you want. I surrender my life to you. If you've never done that, or and you'd like to do that this morning, just, just as a way of, of responding and say, yeah, pastor, I, I want to receive Christ as my savior. I, 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 I need to do that. I, I want him in my life. I'm desperate for him. I can't save myself. I need Jesus. If that's you this morning and you want to do that, just, just put your hand up right now and just say, hey, pray for me. I want to do that. I, I just, just, would you do that for me, Lord? Thank you. Yes. And, and I just want to challenge you believers as you're here this morning. You know what? Poor in spirit. Yeah, we were, we were poor. You were poor in spirit to get saved. But we want to grow in that as well. That life of dependency on God. And I just want to pray that God will help you do that. Father, I just thank you, Lord, that you would just help us grow closer and closer to you, Lord. And that we would just come before you, God, every day and just say, Jesus, I surrender myself to you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.